Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the In Conversation podcast, a joint production of Oxford University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Alexander Mikabaritza, author of the book Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace. Alexander, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. Uh, it's, uh, all, uh, uh, it's a pl- uh, privilege and a pleasure to be here. It, it's a pleasure for us as well. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, well, um, I think the first thing is uh, that I'm Georgian. I think that defines <laughs> who I am. <laughs> uh, a, a proud uh, um, son of, of a small country uh, in, in the Caucasus Mountains. And I say that because um, kind of my upbringing, my uh, my worldview was shaped by the experiences I had as a, as a kid in, in in newly independent Georgia in and late eighties, certainly nineties, very turbulent period. Uh, and, and my life was changed by my passion for history. Um, I always loved history, but especially I was drawn to French history. Uh, and, and, you know, growing in a war-torn country, um, you know, pursuing history was not particularly an, an enticing idea. So initially I went into a legal career, did my uh, law degree, uh, practiced it. But uh, at certain point, I realized that as much as I loved law, uh, it's history that really fascinated me. So in, in 2000, I left my um, you know, legal career behind. And instead, uh, dived into the world of Napoleon and Napoleonic Wars, and uh, it has been one hell of a ride ever since. <laughs> it gets to one of the things I've, I've greatly enjoyed about your work, which is that you bring in a perspective that you don't see as much in the English language historiography. I mean, there's there's plenty about uh, the 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 you know the British perspective, obviously the French perspective. You see, there's many good works about the the, the German perspective, the Austrian perspective, and. and Russia, while it gets uh, you know due attention, so much of it comes from the standpoint of, of lacking that that you know in, that for like you know I don't mean this in derogatory sense the indigenous perspective that that perspective from the east of of, of how you know people in that uh, part of Europe looked upon you know. Uh, Russia and, and not, excuse me, not Russia, France, Napoleon, and, and it really just opens up our understanding of of the of the period in so many ways. Thank you, and, and that's how I perceived kind of my my place in in this uh, very diverse uh, and, and uh, historically uh, very well developed field of Napoleonic studies. And I saw myself in kind of uh, doing two two things. Um, one was indeed to bring the Eastern European perspective, um, primarily Russian, but also uh, showcasing the Polish, the the Georgian um, kind of um, worldview, because we oftentimes forget um, uh, how impactful the Napoleonic um, era was, and and I think my you know the previous book which looked at Napoleonic Wars as a global conflict, um, tried to do exactly that, kind of show, uh, to show that the, the familiar picture of Napoleonic Wars fought in, in Central and Western Europe, uh, as, as uh, fascinating as it is, is, is very uh, limited. Um, so I, I tried to broaden uh, the, uh, the parameters, kind of the perspective of it. And, and the second uh, area kind of my uh, research, not research, but more of my efforts was that, um, as you pointed out, we have already well-established British and French and German historiographies, but oftentimes historians are like 
you know, they remain in their own kind of foxholes, right? They, they, they stay within their familiar confines. And I, um, I've tried to, uh, to break out of it and, and, and write books that are uh, tapping historiographies from multiple languages, from multiple historical traditions. Um, so for Napoleonic Wars, the Global History, I, I um, consulted uh, sources in, in almost a dozen languages. And even for Kutuzov, uh, the, the, the book that we're reviewing today, um, I've tried to look at the Polish and Russian and French and, and English and German perspectives as a, as a way of kind of offering a more holistic, more comprehensive view of history. What led you to undertake a biography of Kutuzov? And, and uh, what were some of the challenges that you faced in, in doing so? Um, I think um, in, in the introduction, I kind of lay out three primary uh, reasoning, kind of three factors for it. One, um, and kind of starting with the basic one, and that is uh, just fascination with historical characters. And, and there is, Napoleonic era is, is famous for producing a, a pleiad, kind of a constellation of really interesting, complex, diverse individuals who, for better or worse, shaped um, the destiny of Europe and, and beyond for, you know, during this crucial quarter of a century period. Um, you know, Napoleon, of course, has been written extensively about just in the in, in last few years alone. We, we have seen uh, more than half a dozen major biographies of him. Uh, same applies, for example, for the French and British generals. Um, uh, my, my dear friend, Rory Muir, for example, wrote a, a, a masterful biography of Duke of Wellington uh, that, that will stand the test of time uh, and, and will be the definitive work on him. But in all of the um, in dozens and dozens of books that have been written uh, on this period, uh, there is unfortunately a dearth of studies of, of the Russian side. And of course, without Russia, it will be impossible to understand uh, how, you know, how and why this uh, conflict, this period kind of developed. And so... Um, I decided to um, kind of to fill this niche to 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 uh, fix this problem. My initial intention was to actually write a biography of Alexander, uh, Emperor Alexander of Russia, uh, or instrumental uh, person um, uh, or figure uh, in all of this. Uh, but uh, just as I was starting, uh, my colleague uh, Marie Pierre Rey, um, a, a fabulous French historian, actually published a, a remarkable book, a biography of his. And so then uh, I kind of uh, switched to my uh, to a second option that I had, and uh, and that was to look at one of the military figures, and Kutuzov was the uh, the first choice in this because he's an iconic figure. I think probably the most iconic Russian figure of this period. In fact, in the introduction, I point out that in 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 many respects, Kutuzov overshadows almost every. Uh, everyone, uh, um, certainly on the Russian side, of everyone uh, of his contemporaries, and even more largely, uh, more broadly, almost everyone from the 19th century. Uh, so the public polls that have been conducted in, in Russia for the past uh, two decades consistently show him in top five of the most recognizable figures. And in the, in, even in the West, when we talk about Napoleonic figures, usually people think of that uh, um, kind of you know, figure of, of old man with an eye patch. 
uh, who uh, kind of uh, cont- contemplates the, you know, the, the battlefield and then history unfolding in front of him. So that was, I think, the first kind of simplest um, desire to, to fill um, the existing gap. The second uh, was that once I started looking at Kutuzov and, um, and, and exploring it, I realized that it all, um, Kutuzov offers a, uh, a very interesting um, insight into broadly, into more broadly, uh, into the saga of Russian military political history. He had a long career, uh, five decades of serving in the military. And so that allows you then as a historian to follow him, not just as, as just, or simply as an individual, but as an individual that reflects the destinies, the the ups and downs of the country that he serves. And and so to for me, Kutuzov therefore served as a gateway into the um, political military history of Russia. And, and this is a very turbulent period in Russian history uh, with, with uh, territorial acquisitions, with expansion, with empire building. And, and third, and I think... Um, uh, equally interesting uh, reason for writing this book is that Kutuzov uh, is is a good example of of myth making. Uh, I think the more famous example, of course, is Napoleon himself, who, uh, in many respects, writes his own history um, in, in exile and, and crafts that Napoleonic legend that is so influential to the very present day. Right, in in most cases, what we remember about Napoleon in, in public imagination is, is Napoleonic legend. Well, Kutuzov is part of a separate legend of, of the myth, but unlike Napoleon, he didn't create it himself as such as as the state, the, both the Russian imperial state, but especially later on, the Soviet government uh, carefully crafted this myth in order to serve its own political uh, goals and needs. And I thought this will be an interesting process, kind of, to explore how this, uh, how history could be rewritten, how it can be reimagined, and how uh, myth can supplant the historical fact. And that struck me as one of the challenges you must have had in this book, which is untangling all that. In that you have so much that you know the you know to borrow from John Ford, you know the 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 the. Uh, truth, you know, uh, being replaced by legend, so they just print the legend, and you have this uh, a, a lot of, uh, you, for example, the the effort to sort of graft uh, Kutuzov to Surov and, and and sort of make it as though there's this continual, you know, spectrum of of, of great, you know, Soviet general of Russian generalship that, as you explained, is 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 very much overstated, uh, and and kind of gets to how much of 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 Kutuzov we we have that is you know the product of this uh, heroism this 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 hero making rather than you know what the you know what the evidence suggests instead. You're absolutely right. In fact, um, uh, you know one of the problems I see, kind of, of course, and there are numerous problems. One of the big problems I see with with this kind of myth making is that it tends to whitewash uh, the figure at the at the center of this myth, and and, and Kutuzov is. Is a victim of this myth making as much as his hero of uh, that, that this myth creates of him, and and the reason I mention I say this is because the myth creates kind of national monument, uh, but by doing so it 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 obscures it erases the subtleties the nuance the complexities of his character, uh, which which is what I love about right uh, about historical figures is understanding what makes them take. 
what were their limitations, what their flaws, uh, and and strength. And and researching this book, I kind of point this out that you know, for for example, for a very long time, Soviet historians and then in, and and m- many of modern the Russian historians kind of try to skirt the uh, awkward. Um, aspects of Kutuzov's career, and especially his relationship with women, his, you know, womanizing, his uh, kind of involvement in, in in with serfdom. Uh, um, uh, you know, the Soviet historians for a long time kind of positioned Kutuzov as this uh, pure, pure, uh, you know, true Russian hero um, who reflected this Russian way of, of, of war. Uh, and then when you kind of scratch the surface and look at the complexities, you see that it is, fu- you know, it, it's it's more uh, murkier uh, uh, history, is murkier and more complex, but also more fascinating. You know, it, it makes Kutuzov uh, uh, s- both a, co- a, a complicated figure that you, this, you know, both love and hate. <laughs> you know, there are a lot, a lot of things about his character that I find fa- fascinating. The, he's... He's a very capable man, you know, very uh, accomplished man, but he's also a man of uh, of, of questionable morals uh, on, on on many occasions, right? It is a, he's a man who, on one hand, is a doting father of, of 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 five daughters and loving husband, but yet he's a womanizer, right? He's a man who is an enlightened philosopher, and he writes. Uh, treatises about the need to respect the soldiers and treat them nicely, but they, he's also a, a, a person who owns thousands of serfs uh, who at no point considers emancipating them, right? And so that kind of juxtaposition of uh, what we can say opposites, right? Or, you know, you know I, I love this, and, and I love exploring it. And instead of whitewashing, I actually thrive kinda in, in trying to understand uh, the personality of the of, of, of man like Kutuzov. Let's begin by talking a bit about his early years. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about his background, uh, from where he comes, and, and how it was that he uh, chose a career in the military, and and how that early career progressed. Um, well, here I think two things are important to to uh, state uh, from the outset. Uh, one is that Kutuzov was born into nobility. Uh, his family is quite uh, ancient in, in that respect. Uh, we can trace it all the way back to 13th century. And uh, over the period, uh, right, of about um, 500 years, um, they produced generations of um, uh, officials, um, military leaders, um, though none of them accomplished or you know reached the heights of Kutuzov. But nonetheless, they were successful enough in, in this uh, in, in, in this military uh, career. Uh, and that meant that by the time Kutuzov was born um, in, in, 17, in late 1740s, in many respects, um, his destiny was predetermined uh, it, it, because uh, for a Russian nobleman, there were few outlets kind of to, to where they could fulfill themselves except for state service and state service uh, almost uh, always meant military service. So his father was a military man. His grandfather was a military man. His great-grandfather was a military man. So it, it was a natural tr- uh, kind of uh, tr- uh, trajectory for his life to to be in the military. Um, uh, and, and so um, he, it, the way Russian system worked was that um, uh, all Russian noble children were required at the age of seven to 
uh, uh, appear in front of um, authorities. There was a special heraldry office um, that processed, kind of registered and processed them, uh, took them into the, into the registry. And then at the age of 12, uh, they, uh, they could start uh, their service. And Kutuzov was no exception. So he was born in 1747. Uh, at the age of seven, he showed up and got registered. And then five years later, at the age of five, uh, sorry, at, age, at the age of 12, uh, he uh, was enrolled in one of these uh, um, preeminent uh, institutions of military learning in Russia, uh, which uh, he, where he thrived. And, and here we see his, uh, his talents. Um, partly it's because he was very fortunate to have a, uh, a, a capable and a very well-educated father. Uh, his uh, Ilarion uh, Galinishev Kutuzov, uh, his father was an uh, engineer lieutenant general. Uh, he was supervised various military constructions, a very accomplished engineer, uh, who understood the value of education, um, who, despite his hectic schedule, despite the fact that his wife died when his children were young, right, always tried to make sure that his children uh, got uh, the, the necessary training. And so by the time Kutuzov reaches this military school, he already uh, is capable of... Uh, uh, of learning foreign languages, um, he uh, he's well versed in history, geography, in in basics of the military engineering, um, and and we see him thriving at school because of this. In fact, remarkably as it may sound, by the by the time he turned thirteen, so just barely a year uh, year and a half into his training, uh, the school officials notice that he's well ahead of his classmates. So he they actually. I uh, ask him to train his fellow cadets. Uh, so imagine being a 13-year-old and, and being asked to be a teacher for your fellow red classmates. Um, and by the time he's 15, um, and that's already 1762, he graduates from school and he gets a, 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 a big break uh, by being appointed an, an aide-de-camp uh, to a, a senior a member uh, of the Russian military. Uh, so he, he, you know, he starts um, his military five decade long military career in 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 a good spot, uh, uh, in, in both through his skills, through his education, but also through family connections. Right, this is kind of a society in which uh, you cannot be simply talented uh, and get a- ahead. Uh, you do need to have uh, uh, necessary networking, and I think uh, his father um, has. Uh, both of that uh, lined up uh, to jumpstart Kutuzov's career. The other factor that really seems to come into play uh, in your description of his early life is the opportunities that were presented to him. And, and this is one of the, for me, one of the, the parts of the book I, I thought was most interesting, which was that we associate uh, Kutuzov with uh, the Napoleonic Wars, in particular, of course, the invasion of Russia in 1812. But he really <laughs> seems to spend the bulk of his career uh, fighting against the Ottomans. And, and this is where he gets to practice the craft of war. As you point out, this is where he, uh, you know, uh, you know, makes connections and, and socializes with all of the uh, so many of the key figures uh, in the final campaigns uh, in his life, and, and it really is this is where you, as you identify, Kutuzov is really learning uh, about the, the the nature of war and and becoming quite practiced at it. 
Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think this is, um, um, you know, we, uh, we oftentimes ignore that Napoleonic Wars, um, and revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, um, were preceded by a, a much kind of uh, larger period of, of, of imperial uh, struggles, um, part of which was uh, Russian attempts to expand territorially, politically, uh, into the territory of their neighboring states. And that included uh, uh, Poland, Lithuanian Commonwealth, which ultimately will be partitioned, right, in 1772, then 1792, uh, 93, and, and, and finally 1795. And Kutuza will participate in all three partitions of Poland. Uh, and as you pointed out in, in this long-standing uh, series of conflicts uh, between Russia and Ottoman Empire, uh, which determined the future of Ukraine, uh, which uh, were, you know, the, the, these conflicts that uh, brought the Russian presence uh, all the way to the banks of the Danube River. Uh, and Kutuzov um, uh, indeed uh, serves in all of these campaigns. So starting in 1767, uh, all the way to um, 1812, he, he spends most of his career fighting uh, Poles and the Ottomans, especially the Ottomans. Uh, he he uh, took part in several conflicts against them. Um, and, and that shapes his um, kind of experiences, his worldview for, uh, in, in a number of ways. To me, the most important one was uh, his uh, service under the two um, accomplished um, Russian generals. Uh, one of them is world famous, and, and your listeners will quickly recognize his name, uh, future Generalissimo uh, Alexander Suvorov, uh, who um, was the hero of Seven Years' War, later on fought with remarkable success against the Ottoman Turks, uh, and then went on to have a, a, a remarkable uh, experiences against the French in 1799. Uh, Kutuzov served under uh, Suvorov uh, during his uh, assignment in, in, in the Danubian principalities, in 1790s, uh, and, and so that certainly shaped his experiences. But Soviet historians tended to uh, exaggerate, and then many Russian historians do exaggerate this kind of relationship between the iconic uh, Suvorov and, and Kutuzov. Uh, for a long time, they were perceived to be this kind of the master and the disciple. Uh, but when I dug deeper, I, I realized that uh, the relationship is there, but it's not to the degree that historians made out to be. Uh, far more important was the relationship between Kutuzov and another uh, uh, eminent and, and a very talented Russian uh, military commander, and that is Peter Rumantsev. Rumantsev, unfortunately, is kind of overshadowed uh, and, and eclipsed uh, uh, in, in, in all of these discussions by Suvorov and later on by Kutuzov, but he is truly, uh, uh, he truly deserves to be more well-known, and even though we still lack a biography of his, uh, in, in both in Russian, there are no new biographies of him, and certainly in, in English, where there are no biographies of him. And yet, if you look at Rumantsev, he has um, approach to a war that will many you know will strike your listeners as as what we consider to be Napoleonic, and this is a notion of mobility, concentration of superior numbers, a decisive point. Uh, he talks about moving separately and then concentrating to uh, confront the enemy at the decisive point. Uh, he, um, he, 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 you know, he, he emphasizes the tactical flexibility, 
uh, and he is extremely successful vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the Ottoman Turks. Uh, this, particularly his campaign in 1770s, is uh, absolutely uh, um, stunning. And Kutuzov was fortunate to be serving on the Romansov during this campaign uh, in various capacities. In fact, uh, in, in the book, I'm, uh, I'm pointing out that one of the things that makes Kutuzov interesting is the sheer diversity of his military service. Uh, and and uh, I, I know that you will find maybe, dif I, I found it difficult, and uh, I think your listeners too, to find another officer who, at this period, uh, he, he, uh, went through so many diverse um, assignments. Uh, he starts his career as a as an, uh, staff officer, quickly becomes quartermaster officer, uh, then is given the tasks uh, of organizing grenadier units, then is sent to regular uh, infantry. Uh, he excels in that. Then he's uh, um, tasked with organizing from scratch uh, light infantry units. In fact, he writes a definitive study, a, a, a manual on how to do it. Uh, then he's given the task of uh, leading, organizing and leading light cavalry, uh, uh, lancer units, uh, then shifts back to staff officer, becomes a commanding officer, and then entrusted diplomatic missions and so on and so on. Uh, it's really the, the breadth of his experiences is what makes him a well-rounded military commander, which comes very handy for him later on when he is given command of armies against a fearful enemy like Napoleon. You also mentioned that uh, this is uh, it's during this period of his life that he gets this uh, I iconic injury. And I, I say it's iconic because it it's iconic in how it's misrepresented. And you know, I was fascinated by your description. Your, your, and, and, you know, I, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but your, your speculation as to how this injury shapes him as a person. I'm referring to uh, when he's fighting against the Ottomans and he gets shot in the head. And 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 this is the kind of thing where it's like you know that that should have been the the you know Kutuzov basically that's you know he's not, he's not a figure in history period but he, but he survives it and of course this is where he, as you point out and, and have pictures of in your book you know how he's depicted you know in in so much of of, of modern media as having this eye patch to, to cover for the injury on his right eye and, and yet as you explained that that's not uh, you know the case he had he in fact never wore an eye patch but as you identified. The injury changed him in ways that 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 it shaped his personality. Might have shaped his personality in ways that contribute to how we see him in 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 uh, in, in, in uh, Tolstoy's novel, in 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 so much of the accounts of his contemporaries in terms of how he ran his uh, later campaigns. Indeed, um, uh, to, for the listeners, I think it, it, it's well worth to explaining what what happened because Kutuzov is. That rare example in history uh, of a person uh, who gets shot in the head uh, two and a half times and then somehow makes it through. <laughs> just amazing. Uh, I wish I could have some of that luck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, exactly, right? Um, the first time, um, the first injury, uh, the most grievous one, um, he, he experiences in August of 1774. This is part of the Russo-Ottoman War. Uh, and uh, interestingly, um, the peace treaty has been already negotiated and signed, but the news of it um, has not reached uh, the remote corners of Crimea. Uh, instead, uh, the Russian army that is deployed in Crimea receives the news of an Ottoman offensive 
And so they dis dispatch a small detachment to stop the Ottomans from attacking. And, and uh, the two sides met at a small village of Shumi in, 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 in the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, and during the fighting, uh, Kutuzov was rallying his grenadiers uh, to um, rush across uh, a broken terrain, uh, which was cut across kind of with, with three ditches. And as he was uh, climbing out of one of these ditches, uh, Kutuzov leading by example from the front, uh, he climbed on a large boulder and effectively turned to these troops and kind of called for them to follow him. But just as he did, because he was looking um, kind of towards his troops, the Ottoman bullet struck his uh, skull. Uh, he actually struck his uh, temple, left temple, uh, right between the eye and the temple, passed through his skull, and then came out precisely on the other side. And as I point out in the book, the odds of a bullet, and, and listeners have to bear in mind that this is a half an inch lead projectile, so the odds of that half an inch item, <laughs> right, smashing your temple, going through your skull, and then coming out of on the other side without killing you is, is strikes me as astronomically small. And yet he was fortunate, uh, fortunate for a number of reasons. One, the bullet uh, went through his skull without uh, damaging uh, the the uh, brain matter. Uh, second, he when he fell into the ditch, his soldiers quickly picked him up um, and carried him uh, to the rear where he was uh, 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 treated by the physicians. Uh, third, that's for some reason, um, and and it's still kind of maybe you know for two you know kind of part of that providence and then fate. Uh, for some uh, somehow he, the matter um, that the bullet in, in introduced into in, in, into his body did not get inflamed. In fact, um, Kutuzov made a full recovery uh, from his injury. Now, having said full recovery, I do need to uh, uh, make an observation that you alluded to. Um, we have numerous cases throughout history, kind of people have suffering uh, uh, head traumas that affect their personalities. And um, even though, you know, I don't have the direct evidence for it. I'm, I'm kind of building this case to say that a, a, a severe injury like this of, of a, uh, a foreign projectile kind of passing through the brain you know, uh, skull would not have uh, left him unscathed psychologically, right? Um, certainly physically, it, it, it left the scarring. It, it left the, him with a one eye uh, constantly... You know, skewed away um you know uh, it, it made him sensitive to light and uh, it left him uh suffering from uh headaches for the rest of his life but i cannot but wonder whether you know it 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 would not have had uh, a more internal kind of injury of what we now call kind of post-traumatic stress disorder right the ptsd that because he it does you know the contemporaries remark that this injury made him more uh, uh, kind of reserved. It made him more, uh, you know, less inclined to open up to other uh, people. There is um, uh, one of the contemporaries who said that, you know, uh, that Kutuzov's heart is, is close to the outsiders uh, and that he remarks it in the wake of this injury. So I think it, it, this injury would have had a profound uh, um, effect on, on his personality as such. 
The second time he gets shot is is just uh, a few years, uh, uh, nine years later, um, in again in the Crimea. Uh, and this time, uh, once more, they're fighting the Ottoman Turks. They're trying to capture a, a strategically important fortress of Ochakov. And Kutuzov is um, standing uh, in, in one of the uh, earthworks that the Russians built as a way of blockading the Ottoman fortress. And a, a fellow uh, officer called him to look uh, from an embrasure uh, to point out, you know, he wanted to point out an, Ottoman, uh, an unfolding Ottoman attack. And just as Kutuzov looked out, an Ottoman uh, 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 bullet struck him again. This time, instead of st striking him in the in in the side, right, it struck him frontally uh, into the cheek, uh, went through his uh, mouth and exited uh, in, in the back of his skull. Again, just remarkable uh, um, injury to suffer and survive. Um, but Kutuzov made, a, uh, in fact, a, a much quicker recovery from this one from, than from the first. Uh, he had injury. practice. Yeah, <laughs> he had practice, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and he, uh, he made a comeback. And then the third time he gets injured in, in the head is at actually at Austerlitz, and that's the lightest of the injuries, uh, head injuries he suffered when uh, a splinter might have been a musket, but I think it was a musket ball, but I, I think it was a, a shell splinter. Uh, struck him in the uh, cheek and kind of uh, pen you know move a flash wound uh, rather than substantive injury like the first two. Um, so, uh, in through all of these injuries, people of course contemporaries were astounded by his survival, and there are numerous in instances of people remarking that uh, maybe it's the providence, maybe it's the fate that keeps Kutuzov alive for something bigger, something greater, and and of course later on. Uh, his leadership of the Russian army uh, in 1812 kind of justify, you know, offers his justification for those predictions. It, it actually, I'm thinking there might be some credence to that, given that the effect that you describe of how it, you know, the the the, the impact of the first bullet makes him more reticent, withdrawn. He's 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 more uh, closed off about his opinions, and how in many respects he needs to be, given the. Uh, backdrop of, of Russian court politics that you described. Uh, he goes through this remarkable period of, of Russian history where he starts off as a service under, under Catherine the Great. And then when uh, her, when her uh, son Paul takes over and you have this incredibly politically tumultuous period that ends in uh, and effectively a coup. And then you have uh, Paul's replacement by Alexander the first and how Alexander is, is our, with whom he you basically, he's the czar who, who uh, is, is ruling Russia when, when uh, Napoleon invades. And yet, even though Kutuzov is this great military hero and he plays this great role, you explain that they don't get along very well. And it's, 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 it's fascinating to imagine how, you know, if they didn't, if, if they got along that poorly, given how, reticent Kutuzov was, how <laughs> if he had been more more the boisterous, outspoken person of his youth, whether that might have, you know, crippled his career, say, under Paul and, and, and possibly even cost him his life. So um, I, I think you touched a very interesting element in, in Kutuzov's character, uh, uh, his personality, um, uh, his career, uh, and more broadly, uh, a really important episode in Russian history. And that is the tr uh, kind of uh, the turbulent nature of uh, court politics in Russia. Uh, the 18th century was the period of, of palace coups in Russia, right? We had uh, an overthrow of, of one ruler followed by, you know, another coup. 
uh, we had uh, Ru Russian rulers like Peter III and then Paul I, who have what I call, what I usually tell students, uh, they, they experience accidents. Accidents that were facilitated, <laughs> <laughs> facilitated by by uh, by military men. Um, uh, both of them are assassinated, uh, and and, and uh, uh, the road is paved for for their successors. Uh, Kutuzov uh, finds himself, of course, in the midst of this court politics, and you're absolutely right that um, I think this combination of his head injury, uh, his experiences at, at the court, makes him. Um, more suspicious, more reserved, even morose uh, than he would have otherwise been. Because we know that at home uh, and in the company of, of the people that he trusted, he was a very jovial person. In fact, a person that uh, was renowned for his jokes, for his uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, a, a person full of, of, of life and and. and you know, his you know womanizing was uh, was certainly part of it. In fact, uh, at, at one point he almost you know he suffers grave consequences for one of those uh, uh, you, you know nights of, of, of joking around when he uh, you know went with his friends to to a tavern, sat down, they drank maybe one too many, and then Kutuzov started making jokes and impersonating commander in chief. It elicited a lot of laughs at the time, but the following morning one of these officers uh, denounced him and the commander-in-chief didn't appreciate being made fun of Kutuzov or by Kutuzov and he had him removed from the army. And later on when he is in the uh, the Nubian principalities we know that uh, in some officers uh, talked about his his house always be full of merrymaking and, and, and fun but that's because Kutuzov kind of uh, gathered people that he trusted. Um, when it came to court politics, he understood how you know you had to be a very subtle, kind of observant person, uh, and he tried his best to kind of uh, fit himself to circumstances. And this is where we see uh, the less kind of palatable aspects of his of his of his character, because uh, he's uh, willing to debase himself in front of the people who are of, of more powerful than him. And probably the most egregious example of this is his relationship with uh, Platon Zubov, who was this young lover of Catherine the Great. Uh, uh, and, and Kutuzov uh, infamously uh, visited Zubov on multiple occasions and uh, would uh, actually prepare and serve him Turkish coffee uh, while Zubov was in bed. And this image of a war hero of a man who's who was considered among the uh, most successful russian military leaders of the time uh, meekly standing there by the by the bedroom doors of of the empress's lover who has this penchant for showing up in front of people in in, in semi-naked uh attire uh and and so kutuzov standing there with his meekly with his coffee maker scandalized the contemporaries in fact in, in the book i point out that um, uh, the symbol of so-called Kutuzov's coffee maker became the symbol of emas emasculation of Russian ability uh, to the degree that even Alexander Pushkin, the greatest of Russian poets, poets who grew up uh, right during the Napoleon era, speaks derisively of, of of that symbol. That you know, this is what happened to Russian warriors, uh, and, and Kutuzov becomes this glaring example of it. 
Um, one of the aspects, you, know, you, you touched upon it, is, is Kutuzov's relationship with the emperors and empresses. Um, uh, he has uh, good relations with Catherine and Paul, even though Catherine and Paul were diametrically opposed in worldview, in character, in, in, in how they ruled. And still, Kutuzov found a way to kind of adjust himself to their ruling styles. Um, for a long time, uh, historians argued that Kutuzov was discriminated and abused uh, by Paul, that Kutuzov uh, resisted the Prusophile tendencies of Paul. But when I looked at the archival documents and their correspondence, I found nothing, nothing of sort. In fact, what I found was diametrically opposed in that Kutuzov uh, understood that uh, Paul's insistence of, on accountability, Paul's desire to introduce changes and kind of override the tradition um, was an opportunity for Kutuzov himself to act on, uh, on reforms that he thought was necessary. And so he exploited this moment to push through, for example, important changes in uh, military educational system in Russia. Uh, uh, Kutuzov was quite close to Paul. In fact, when I looked at the court journals that recorded who came uh, to see the emperor, who dined with him, who had lunch with him, Kutuzov figures prominently. Uh, and in the book, I point out that Paul uh, was so close to Kutuzov that he actually uh, offered Kutuzov to use his personal library so they can read the same books and discuss it. So this is, at no point do you see kind of these standards, kind of, uh, uh, conventional narrative of Kutuzov being mistreated and persecuted. There were instances when uh, Paul was upset at him. There were instances when Paul berated him, but that, I think, comes with the territory. Um, Kutuzov's relations with Alexander is, is far more complex. And partly because the way Alexander came to power. Uh, in March of 1801, uh, Paul had a, uh, an evening dinner like he, he always had. Uh, Alexander, his son, is present and Kutuzov is, is attending too. And they had this kind of jovial conversation. In fact, after the dinner is over, uh, Paul and Kutuzov are walking away. And the story goes, and that Kutuzov himself uh, shared that, uh, that they stopped in front of the mirror, and it seems the mirror had some some curvature in it, uh, some dis you know it, it, because it distorted the image of the emperor. And Paul remarked, uh, kind of jokingly, like, "Look at this! I, I'm you know this mirror shows me with a wrecked ne neck." Well, unbeknown to him, that same night, a group of conspirators, all right, a group of officers, about sixty of them, um, snuck into the royal palace um, and ha you know, murdered him. We know that uh, Alexander was aware of this conspiracy. Now, now we debate whether he knew uh, about the conspirators' uh, plan to actually kill the emperor, or whether he expected them to simply convince the, his father to resign. Um, irrespective of that, the fact was that the emperor was assassinated, and his son came to uh, came to power with through murder. Uh, there is a wonderful quote by one of the contemporaries who says that the murder of his father hang over Alexander like a vulture. And I love that same imagery, that this memory that was constantly with him. Um, Kutuzov certainly was aware what, of what had transpired that night. And he was aware of the um, certain culpability or kind of, kind of uh, uh, involvement that uh, the new emperor had. 
And yet um, the new emperor um, employed him, employed, in fact, to the degree that of trusting him with the governorship of St. Petersburg, the imperial capital, uh, at, the, at the very crucial po- uh, moment in, in, this, in, in his reign, because he came through, uh, came, he's a uh, new emperor who came to power through uh, an illegal right, um, action against his father. So he needs uh, trusted individuals to shore up his authority. And Kutuzov is one of those officials. But this relationship sours rapidly because Kutuzov um, kind of uh, is, is a courtier. He's a politically involved individual at the court, and he tries to navigate this court politics uh, and you know kind of find the middle ground between the conspirators who are wielding tremendous power and the emperor who wants to weasel himself out of this. Uh, out of the conspirators' influence. And ultimately, Kutuzov is un, uh, pays a heavy price for it because uh, the emperor finds him untrustworthy and, and has him removed. Um, in, in that all takes place in 1801-1802 period, so a very short kind of, but uh, interesting period uh, for relationship between the emperor and the commander. Um, that relation, that, you know, the, the first year of uh, of the relationship then shapes the subsequent decade. Um, to credit, to Alexander's credit, whenever he needed uh, uh, a military leader uh, capable of kind of leading an army, he uh, tended to consider uh, Kutuzov, uh, which meant he had to set aside his personal qualms, his personal kind of antipathy for the commander. Um, in 1812 is, uh, of course, the most famous example of it when uh, Alexander doesn't like Kutuzov. He doesn't necessarily want him to lead the nation, but he understands that Kutuzov is experienced. He understands that he needs this steady leadership, um, and um, you know, through you know, overcoming this inner dislike of the man, he he approves him. Uh, and similar thing happens in 1805 when you know when selecting a commander of an army to confront Napoleon in in Germany, uh, Alexander. Is, selects Kutuzov, even though in previous years, their relationship was not particularly good. It's especially fascinating to consider that when you look at 1812, as you do in your book, and and, and, the, and the 1812 period does take up the single largest portion of your book, and, and you discuss not just his relationship with Alexander, but his relationship with the other Russian commanders, and they were no shrinking violets. They 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 were men of great ambition themselves, and and as you might imagine, for uh, uh, army uh, uh, commanders, they they all felt that they were they were should be the person in charge. They should be the person uh, you know facing Napoleon, and and you describe how. Uh, Kutuzov's part, part of his challenge was in navigating that, and, and, and you you credit the choices he makes there. How how a lot of historians sometimes feel that his uh, division of command uh, prior to Burs, you know, uh, you know, may have complicated his his uh, ability. He, he liked the centralization of command that Napoleon possessed, but you point out how that was necessary given the circumstances he faced, and he coped with it remarkably well. Given that, um, yes, and, and I think you know. Kind of looking, asking that question, right? Why, why Kutuzov is important, which is, I think, question we should all ask. There are, um, I think, couple of answers, you know, couple of uh, reasons I can give. One is his role in in the uh, long-standing conflict between Russia and Ottoman Empire uh, be, uh, since in eighteen eleven, 
Um, it is Kutuzov who uh, defeats quite you know decisively the Ottoman armies, and it's a fascinating study in itself that I devote a whole chapter to. Um, that he defeats the Ottomans and, and kind of imposes uh, uh, you know, peace on them, uh, which is a crucial uh, accomplishment because it, it frees up uh, some 60,000 troops that Russia desperately needs to confront Napoleon's threat. But the second, I think, important reason is exactly uh, Kutuzov's role um, in, in this crucial six months um, uh, in the second half of 1812 during Napoleon's invasion of Russia. We know that he didn't command the armies at the beginning of the war. Uh, he's actually in the Danubian principalities and just finished the war and he's on his way back when the war, uh, when the war erupts. Um, and uh, Russian armies um, struggle to contain Napoleon, uh, uh, the French. Uh, they struggle to deal with the fact that Napoleon was a brilliant uh, commander, the, that he had an army that was... Uh, three and a half times the size of the Russian uh, forces in, in Western Russia. Um, and, and that through June, July, and August, right, the Russians are by necessity are retreating uh, 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 while suffering the lack of unity of command. So they have three armies um, that have each commanders in chief. They are not necessarily agreeing on, on how to pursue the war against the French. And there was a lot of disagreement in um, I actually go to you as far as to say that uh, by August of 1812, there was a brewing mutiny of generals against the Minister of War, uh, Barclay de Tolly, who commanded the largest uh, of the Russian armies and who was uh, almost universally despised and, and reviled. And it is in this context that Alexander realizes that in order to turn the tide of war, he needs to achieve this unity of command. He needs to consolidate the leadership and give and trust this supreme command of the Russian forces to, his, and, and to one individual. And so in August, in late August, uh, after he forms a special commission, which examines different candidates and ultimately selects Kutuzov. Uh, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, Alexander doesn't necessarily like, so he agrees with this selection, but he understands why Kutuzov would be a good choice. Um, and this is where... In, in the book, I point out that Kutuzov may not have been the most brilliant military commanders of this period. Uh, Napoleon certainly shines much brighter than him. Wellington, uh, on many occasions, proves that he's, uh, 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 he's a brilliant tactical and operational commander. But what I like about Kutuzov in, this, in the fall of 1812 is his strategic thinking. Um, when... When he's given the command, he you know he meets fam family members, he meets friends, and throughout these conversations, at least the surviving evidence um, allows us to see his thinking. And here he makes the uh, rather startling kind of observation, uh, you know, remark to you know in, 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 to his family members that he doesn't uh, doesn't hope to quote defeat Napoleon, but rather to outsmart him. And that part really fascinated me, uh, fascinated me uh, in that uh, from onset, Kutuzov understands the limitations of the Russian army. He even now knows his own kind of limitations because he, he is in his 60s. He is, he's just finished a, a grueling campaign. He constantly complains about his ill health. Um, and, and yet he sees something uh, that I think 
many, if not most, of his contemporaries didn't see. Uh, and, and that is, he looks at this conflict against Napoleon in not just in military dimension, but political dimension. And I love kind of looking at him through the prism of Clausewitzian kind of thinking, because Karl von Clausewitz, the great Prussian theorist, actually is on his uh, on his staff. He's, he's in the Russian headquarters at this time. And of course, Clausewitz famously uh, speaks of war as as right uh, of, of politics as as you know war through right different means or um, and, and um, Kutuzov I think shared that worldview that that perspective because his decision to confront Napoleon at Borodino his decision ultimately more even important decision to surrender deliberately give up Moscow is is designed to outsmart Napoleon so for example at Borodino. He, he he makes a stand, not necessarily because he believes that Napoleon will be defeated. In fact, in his private correspondence, we see doubts that he expresses about it. But he knows that this battle is needed for a couple of reasons. One, uh, this is the battle that will take place after a prolonged retreat. Uh, Russians have been retreating for hundreds of miles. And it, a symbol is needed, a symbol that of determination to fight. Uh, a symbol that will rally the army, the rally of the nation around this the, 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 this um, idea that Russia is still capable of, of confronting Napoleon. Um, in in uh, at Borodino, Kutuzov remarks that he intends to let the French break their teeth at us, not necessarily to defeat them, but rather to dig in and let the French uh, come attacking and then exhaust them. And that's what—that's how the battle really unfolds, right? We see uh, Russians on on fortified positions. Uh, anyone who looked at the fortifications that Kutuzov prepared for it understand that this is not uh, an army that was intending on on fighting a flexible, tactically innovative battle. Not at all, right? We have ten fortifi- fortification on the right flank, a massive fortification in the middle, three. Uh, flashes on the left, all designed to kind of serve as as those nuts uh, upon uh, on which the French will break their teeth. But it is in the wake of Borodino, which Kutuzov, even without waiting for the um, results, um, telling them what the extent of the losses, he quickly writes a report saying, that, hey, we won in this battle, because he sees here the importance of political victory, right? This public uh, relations victory that he wants to secure, but even more important than this is is his thinking between Borodino and Moscow, because here he re- he you know very uh, steadily, very kind of subtly reveals to his officers the intention to surrender Moscow. And what I what I find fascinating is that Kutuzov looks at Napoleon not just as a military leader, but as a political leader, as a as a person who needs to. Um, find a political solution to the conflict. Again, a Clausewitzian approach. And so Kutuzov wants to exploit that. And he famously says uh, uh, that Napoleon is like a torrent, like a mountain landslide, right, that comes wiping everything away. And that con- containing this landslide by conventional means is, is almost impossible. Unless you find something that will soak it in, you know, take this raging torrent and soaks it. And for Kutuzov, that something is Moscow, a, a political center, a, a historical capital. He sees uh, in Moscow the 
that bait that Napoleon will swallow and will try to find political solution to a conflict. And that's why Kutuzov effectively gives up Moscow without defending it as is universally demanded by the army, as universally is demanded, expected in the society. And instead, he gives it to uh, Napoleon, expecting that Napoleon will stay in Moscow uh, uh, in, in search of uh, political resolution to the war. Uh, Kutuzov knows that there will be no political resolution to this war. He Because when he met with Alexander uh, to receive the command of the army, uh, in no uncertain terms, Alexander told him, not to negotiate with the French and pursue a military solution, kind of defeating the army. And uh, in uh, knowing that, um, I think Kutuzov exploits um, that weakness of Napoleon. And, and I find it particularly interesting that in some of the conversations, Kutuzov says that he studied Napoleon, he studied his character, he studied his campaigns. Uh, that he paid very close attention to what was happening in Europe, uh, you know, especially around Napoleon, and that oh, that knowledge informed his thinking in, in 1812. And he ultimately, he's right. Uh, Napoleon captures Moscow. He spends oh, 35 days amidst the ruins of a burned-out city in a, in a desperate but vain attempt to convince Russian government to negotiate with him. Right? He keeps sending these... Uh, overtures to Alexander. Um, and, and Kutuzov very kind of skillfully uh, cultivates this expectation of, of Napoleon that, you know, Russians might be willing to, to consider negotiating. I think the, uh, the best example of it is the famous mission that Napoleon sends um, uh, by, uh, led by Loriston, one of his diplomats, in October of 1812. Uh, Loriston is tasked with delivering a letter that Napoleon wrote to Alexander to deliver this letter to Kutuzov. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, Kutuzov was under strict orders not to meet with French envoys, not to negotiate uh, on uh, uh, whatsoever. And yet, in direct contravention of this instruction, Kutuzov meets Loriston, talks to him, in fact, agrees to deliver the letter to Alexander. Um, now, he understands that this will be a, a thing that will enrage uh, the Russian emperor, but uh, Kutuzov says, um, you, you know, the, uh, I love this kind of quote in, in one of his letters. He says, you can't miss out on an opportunity that presents itself. And for him, Napoleon's um, uh, letter uh, reveals the desperation uh, that the French emperor is in. It reveals that Kutuzov's expectations are indeed correct. And it allows him to create this uh, image, uh, a, a kind of fake image of Russian willingness to consider negotiations as a, as a, uh, to end the war. Uh, he tells Loristan, sure, sure, I will deliver the letter to Alexander and we, we might consider negotiating when Kutuzov had no, no intentions to do that whatsoever. In fact, uh, Alexander when he receives this letter of rights, a very stern response to Kutuzov's telling him, didn't I tell, you know, didn't I warn you not to talk to the French? And Kutuzov writes meekly back saying, yes, yes, you're right. I will not talk to them. And yet in late, in, in mid-October, when uh, Napoleon sends another envoy, guess what Napoleon Kutuzov does? He again meets with him and again kind of cultivates this image of readiness uh, to talk. And that is the, I think, historical 
historically important role that Kutuzov performs. Uh, uh, not necessarily of tactical brilliance or operational uh, uh, genius, uh, but rather on the strategic level, on the political level, understanding what needs to be done to um, uh, to defeat an opponent like Napoleon. He also has one final benefit that you mentioned at the end, which is that he dies at a very opportune moment. He dies in 1813. Uh, the war is still ongoing, but he dies ha- with Napoleon having been driven out of Russia, uh, very nearly uh, captured or killed uh, in that process. Uh, but before the battles of 1813, 1814, which might have tarnished his reputation, I was wondering if you could perhaps speak a bit to that reputation and how it evolved in in, in the years since, especially given that it involved so many uh, uh, people like Alexander, who you know con- contemporaries who weren't necessarily that fond of him. Uh, absolutely. In fact, I will say that. Uh, Many of the uh, senior uh, officers in the Russian army, um, I'll put it mildly, disliked Kutuzov. Uh, people like General Miloradovich, for, uh, uh, General Bagration, um, uh, people like um, later on Major General uh, Alexei, uh, Alexei um, Yermolov and, and others and others found him a, a very difficult person for the very reason that they couldn't pin him down that um, he, Kutuzov always managed to skillfully navigate this behind-the-scene uh, uh, politics and, and intrigues and outmaneuver and outsmart them. They found, you know, they, they, uh, you know, one of them, for example, refers to him as, a, as kind of courtier and courtesan, right? It is a derisive reference. Um, but I think Kutuzov, um, uh, he, he saw this, his mission as finding a way to defeat Napoleon. Uh, he saw that his approach to war, with, as unpopular as it was, right, uh, was working. Uh, because uh, in addition to letting kind of Napoleon have Moscow, uh, Kutuzov waged what we now call asymmetrical warfare. It is Kutuzov who vastly expands the number of uh, flying detachments uh, in the Russian army. Before him, there was... Uh, just two, he creates uh, almost two dozen of them, uh, scatters them in the countryside with the task of uh, targeting uh, Napoleon's communication and supply lines. It is Kutuzov who encourages uh, starting of what he called Little War or what Spanish called Guerrilla War uh, by arming peasants and letting them target the isolated uh, um, uh, French, uh, French detachments. Uh, even though the contemporaries resisted that, and even though many of the uh, landowners uh, were very apprehensive about arming peasants, Kutuzov had no qualms about it. He said, you know, he kind of believed that uh, he can use the population, the, the serf population especially, uh, as a way of, of, of fighting this war. In fact, Napoleon complains to Kutuzov. Uh, of waging war contrary to the rules of war, uh, uh, which elicits a, a chuckle uh, from from uh, from Kutuzov, uh, arguing that you know the you know at war everything was uh, admissible. Um, there is another important element that could you kind of think that Kutuzov accomplished that I think are historically important, and that is once Kutuzov, uh, once Napoleon decides to leave. Moscow and starts, you know, that long and infamous retreat. Then Kutuzov pursues him, 
but he pursues him with this kind of uh, hands-off approach where he shadows him, not necessarily pursues and engages him. Um, vast majority of people around him, officers, generals, all encourage and urge Kutuzov to engage uh, the weakened French army to destroy, to, as you pointed out, to capture Napoleon or maybe kill him, right? Uh, they they want that battle. They want that engagement. They want to vengeance. Um, they want glory at places like Vyazma, like Smolensk, like Berezina, like Krasny. And at each of these um, places, Kutuzov urges restraint, caution. And he does it for, I think, two fundamental reasons. One is he wants to preserve the army. He doesn't want to uh, needlessly sacrifice the lives of the troops. Uh, he wants to be very strategic about it. And second, and in, in, in respect, respect uh, related topic, uh, issue is that already in uh, late October of 1812, he looks down the road um, uh, because he understands that Napoleon has lost this particular campaign. So already in October, he, he's going to think about it. And he looks what will happen in the wake of this war, uh, how, how Napoleon's defeat in Russia will reverberate through uh, Europe. Will the complete downfall of the French Empire be beneficial for Russia? What will happen if Napoleon is indeed completely destroyed or captured or, or killed? Will that create another up, you're gonna, uh, uh, another cycle of turmoil, political instability in Europe? Maybe another cycle of revolutions? And his answer to this is that Napoleon presents the lesser of evils. That is better to let Napoleon kind of escape from Russia with remnants of his army and retain certain degree of control of the continent uh, because this will allow Russians to negotiate with them some sort of understanding. And he reveals this thinking in, in a number of occasions, especially when he talks to the British commissioner uh, to the Russian army, uh, Robert Wilson, who urges um, uh, him to be more actively engaged in prosecuting this war and, and, and seeking defeat of Napoleon. And Kutuzov, in, in, on a number of occasions, kind of responds to Wilson by saying that that is not what Russia needs. And, and especially revealing is the passage when the, uh, when Kutuzov says that the defeat of complete defeat of Napoleon will not serve the Russian interests, but will serve the interests of the nation that will ultimately dominate uh, uh, Europe, and that is Britain. Uh, and in another conversation, he kind of accuses one of the uh, officers, uh, senior officers in the Russian army, who was born in Hanover, which was, of course the uh, was the in, in personal union with Great Britain. Uh, he accuses him of being kind of pro-British, and in Kutuzov says, um, you know, Napoleon's defeat will be will serve the British interests, and that's not what I want to do. And he famously says, I know, uh, if if the British islands uh, uh, go to the you know to the bottom of the sea, and, and I, I will I will not care a, a single bit that he's there to protect Russian interests. Now that. Um, uh, you know, partly we can understand the rationale for this, right? This is kind of geopolitical, uh, strategic thinking that Kutuzov has, uh, but partly we can also see the consequences of it, right? Uh, the consequences was the prolonged struggle against Napoleon um, instead of being all wiped out and maybe defeated in, in, in on November, December of 1812. It took another year and a half of colossal struggles in Germany and in France to bring Napoleon down. 
Uh, it certainly allowed Napoleon then to go in exile, come back, right, fight another war, uh, and and create that Napoleonic legend that will will reverberate. And in the book, um, I I can I kind of marveled what might have happened if Napoleon had been defeated somewhere in Russia and captured, like uh, Russians expected uh, at, at Berezina. What if he had spent the last of his days in, in a Russian prison, or died some you know on, on the banks of one of those frozen rivers? History would have been very, very different, right? Uh, the Congress of Vienna would have met a different place and probably came up with a very different out, uh, conclusions and, and uh, uh, outcomes. Uh, and that's, you know, Kutuzov, I think, is at, at the core of, of that what-if possibility. Hmm. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. Uh, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm, I'm I'm excited to be working on an um, on a project that uh, tentatively is t- uh, uh, entitled uh, Louisiana Purchase and International History. Uh, I want to look at the Louisiana Purchase not uh, from American kind of perspective that has been uh, researched um, so well uh, by my uh, colleagues, but rather look at Louisiana as a pivotal moment in empire making and in, in colonial discourse. Um, uh, bringing in uh, the British, the French, the Spanish uh, dimensions of it, uh, can I expand the perspective uh, from Louisiana to the neighboring territories, to Caribbean, to the Spanish uh, uh, colonies? Uh, because uh, Louisiana has uh, remarkable consequences, not just for the United States, uh, but rather for the empires that were involved in this um, in this deal for the French. For Spanish Empire, for for British, and I think there is uh, much uh, fresh and new that can be said about this subject. Well, it does sound like a fascinating book, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the time and opportunity, and uh, look forward to our next meeting and discussion. I, as do I. I. Hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>